And this morning we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 3. And as we're saying, what a, what a beautiful truth, right? That what we are, what we do, is always in response to what God has already done, right? He's the one who set us free. And now he is the one for whom we live, right? Because he has set us free. We don't live to try to get freedom. We've been given freedom and therefore we live, right? What a great, great uh, truth. So this morning we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. And what I'm going to attempt to do this morning with the text is to show five uh, leadership traits of Nehemiah in chapter 3. And um, then show from the scriptures what God says about the moral virtue of work. Now, I know my outline up there looks a little blank uh, because I changed it all at the last minute. But you will have an outline uh, in your uh, service folder that is closer to where we're going to go, except that the theology of work is going to be at the end. Okay, so that it, it's just a little backwards. Um, so we'll see this, and I'll kind of lay that out for us as we, as we go along this morning. So uh, I want to begin by reading God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word from this Old Testament book of Nehemiah chapter 3. So let me begin. Now there's a lot of names. I've studied this multiple times. I've read it 40 or 50 times. I've listened to it read to me at least that many times. And so I, I pray that you would uh, indulge me as I still navigate these Jewish names as we get through this, okay? So, then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri built. The sons of Hesaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Mermoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baanai, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besadiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. And next to them, Uziel, the son of Harayanah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. And next to them, Jediah, son of Haramph, Hadish, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halalesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zoniah, 
repaired the valley gate. They built it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakiram, repaired the dung gate. He built it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuth, ruler of half the district of beth Zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahim, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Kaliah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Barak, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door to the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests and the men surrounding the area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired uh, beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Bediah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelamiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalath, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the word of God. Well, Father, we ask now that you would superintend our time in, in your word, that you would uh, teach us what it is that you have spoken, your aim and your purpose for uh, in, in scripturating this text for this day. And so we ask, Lord, that you would just um, superintend this time by your Holy Spirit and teach us what you would have us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there we go. There's a list of names. And at first blush, it just seems like a list of names, right? It seems like it's just this, this, this never-ending list of names. And uh, this, uh, this morning, Melissa asked me, it was a great question. Melissa says, so why are you going to read through all those texts? And I said, because it's next. And, and I, I didn't mean that to be facetious, but it was the next text I was in, so I 
that's where we are. And I really think that when we do that, when we systematically go through God's word, God will speak to us in our day and in our time and right where we are at. Um, and so uh, don't feel bad if you struggle with finding the meaning in this text because it is, it is difficult. But what I hope to do this morning is, is give us some context with it that gets us in the context of the, of the whole book that will kind of put it together for us. And then um, we'll make some applications as we go, okay? So, so far the people have embraced the vision of Nehemiah, right? So we remember, remember in last week's text that after Nehemiah had communicated the vision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and restore the glory of God and to reverse the shame of the people, the people, according to chapter 2 and verse 18, say, let us rise up and build. And then it follows, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. So they have embraced the idea that the building of the wall is good work, that it is God-glorifying work, that it is restorative for the people of Israel, for God's people. It, it will restore them. It will reverse the shame that has been brought upon them because of their sin that had put them in exile for these 70-plus years, right? So this is a, a restoration of God's people as well as building the wall. They had seen that there's a bigger picture than just putting stone upon stone. Than just this idea of they said it's it's doors, it's bolts, and it's bars. It's more than setting doors, bolts, and bars. It is that they are bringing the glory of God back to the city of Jerusalem, and they are restoring the the worth that God says that His people have. Right? They're bringing all of that to bear as they come back. So anyway, they strengthen their hands because they know that this is good work. So chapter three here is kind of a general's report. It's like a, a leader's journal as he begins on a 52-day project to build the wall. So imagine this. They've got 52 days. He's, 52 days he's going to build this wall that took hundreds of years and it hasn't been accomplished yet. They started this project long ago and they spent 100 years trying to put it together and it still hasn't happened. So he's saying, I'm, we're going to build this wall and we're going to do it in 52 days. He's like, here we go, right? So if you are a note taker this morning, what I'm going to try to point out from this text is what these leadership traits are, what it is that uh, Nehemiah shows. And he shows this, that leaders delegate the authority to do the work of others, that they divide the work well, that they identify what is the right work and they identify who are the right people for the work. Then a good leader recognizes good work. So all of that is in this text. And then we are going to see, a, I'm going to try to give us a rough, very not detailed uh, view of a theology or a biblical understanding of work, of what work is. I could spend uh, uh, a month of Sundays looking at a theology of what the Bible says and teaches about work. Um, but uh, for this morning's uh, case, I'm just going to kind of give you a brief um, overview from one angle of that notion. So Nehemiah here in the past, we've noticed if you've been tracking and if you haven't, I'm going to get you up to speed here this morning, is that Nehemiah has displayed some excellent leadership qualities for us to emulate so far. As we've looked at this study, we noticed that in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that Nehemiah was, had a great concern for the glory of God 
and for the care of God's people. That was like the first step in his leadership is that the, the ultimate aim of his whole life was the glory of God and the love of God's people. Sounds a little like Jesus, doesn't it? That the love and the glory of God and the love of God's people was the aim of Jesus' life. And Nehemiah wants to set out on this journey as he hears about the plight of his people back home because they've been brought to shame and the glory of God has been brought to shame. And so his heart is, everything I want to do, I want to do it for the glory of God and for the love of God's people. And then secondly, we noted that Nehemiah was a leader who prayed. See, leadership in the kingdom of God is given to those who are dependent upon God to accomplish the goals and visions that they have. Real leaders are dependent. They're not arrogant people who think that I'm going to do what I'm going to do for the sake of God. I'm going to go out and give it everything I've got with all of my strength and abilities and my talents. And I'm such a swell guy that God is going to bless me because I'm going to go out there and do all kinds of work for him. No, godly leadership begins with prayer, dependence upon him. Because if anything is going to be accomplished, if this wall is going to be built in 52 days, it will be because God did the work. Because God did the work through them. That God worked in them and worked it out through them. And that God provided and paved the way and that God in his providence wanted the wall built. That's when it will happen because God wants it built. So, anyway, this, this characteristic of Nehemiah is that he prays, and he prays day and night, and he does so for four months. Then thirdly, we noted that although Nehemiah prayed for four months, he didn't just sit around for four months waiting and, and thinking that God was going to unearth these big heavy stones and all of a sudden that timbers were going to fall out of the sky and that the wall was just going to be built because he prayed. No. While he prayed, he planned. He put a plan of action in place. He thought about the things that he might need, right? He... While he prayed, he dependently on God's will. He prayed and planned for the work that was to be done. He counted the cost. Nehemiah answered some questions in his own mind and in his own heart. How long is this going to take? What materials are going to be needed? Uh, who are the key people that I'm going to need to do this? And what are the obstacles that are involved? So before he ever got audience with the king, he had prayed and planned and he had an answer. He was ready when God said yes. He was ready because he had a plan. So here we see that Nehemiah has a vision that is grander than he alone could carry out. Nehemiah then engages every single type of person in the work, as we look at our text, every type of people. You know, I was thinking about the, the, the vision I cast last week. That is, it's a big vision to bring glory to God and to proclaim the gospel in all places where we go and we live. And it, it's a bigger work than the pastor who stands up here and preaches on Sunday morning. The, the gospel proclamation is bigger. It's huge. And we need you. You need to do it. You need to get to work. You need to work along with me. We need to work together. We can't do this alone. That's the whole idea, right? We can't build up a healthy body of believers with one another with one person working and nobody else doing it. We can't do it with just three people working and everybody else laying down and we got to carry the weight, right? It's not going to work that way. And so Nehemiah knows this as, he's, as it's concerning the wall being built, that this was a task far grander than he could handle on his own. 
And so he chose the right people and he chose people to get to work and he engaged and embraced everybody from every walk of life. The wall was being built, but Nehemiah had cast the vision such that this, that, that the work that they knew they were going to do would bring glory to God, restore honor to Jerusalem and reverse the shame upon God's people. Could you imagine that if Nehemiah just merely wanted them to build a wall in 52 days, how much participation would he get from that group of people and say, hey, we're going to build a wall. I need your help. Is he going to get that kind of cooperation that we see in this text? He's not. It has to be a grander vision than a wall. And this grand vision is that I, I long to bring glory to God back in Jerusalem. I long to restore Jerusalem to its honor that it deserves. God's city. I long to reverse the shame that has been brought upon God's people. Will you help me? And look what he gets. Look at the engagement he gets in this text. See, he begins with the high priest and he engages the other priests in verse 1. Nehemiah involves the residents of other cities. Jericho, Tekoa, Gibeon, Mizpah, Beth Hakerim, Beth Zer, and Keliah. These were all cities that were very far away from Jerusalem. And see, he had told them that the work is bigger than Jerusalem. He involves union and guild workers in the work. In verse 8, he mentions goldsmiths and perfume makers. These guys are not construction workers. Think about it. You want somebody to build a wall, you ask a perfume maker to help you? Right? And the perfume maker helps because it's a bigger, grander vision than building uh, a wall. In verses 31 and 32, he mentions even more goldsmiths. So he's got these craftsmen that are not construction workers, and he engages them. And they went to work on the wall, even though they probably had no experience whatsoever in how to build a wall. But they engage in it. And at several points in the text, Nehemiah, Nehemiah will mention like city officials doing manual labor of working on the building of the walls. He mentions that he engages women in the work. In verse 12, he mentions the daughters of Shalom. In that culture, women were not doing construction work. But they were engaged in the vision, in the grand vision of glory to God and restoring Jerusalem and bringing uh, and reversing the shame that had been upon their people. So they engage in the work. The temple servants were engaged. They took responsibility for the areas that were around where they lived to build their city in which they lived. Verse 29 tells us that law enforcement officers were involved in the construction of the wall. And finally, towards the end of this text, we see that the merchants were engaged in the work as well. It says that goldsmiths and merchants were involved. Nehemiah coordinated the effort. And think about this. He engaged everyone who was willing to strengthen their hands for the good work. Got to go back to chapter 2, right? In verse 18. They strengthened their hands for the good work. And Nehemiah engaged everyone who would strengthen their hands for the good work that God had laid upon him for them to do. Almost 100% engagement. I want to go back and notice something in verse 5. Verse 5 says, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. 
It's only a mention of somebody not engaging. They would not stoop to serve their Lord. But I want us to notice this. This did not dissuade the Tekoites one bit. This is the only group mentioned again. The Tekoites, in, in verse 5, it says, their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. And then, they are mentioned again in verse 27 as having worked on an additional section of the wall. If we look at verse 27. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. The Tekoites were not dissuaded by their nobles who would not stoop to serve the Lord. They're mentioned again as having not only done what they were originally assigned, but also they went beyond. They were not dissuaded in this work. The work of the wall was divided by Nehemiah, in some cases by location and others by necessity. He used people from outside the city to kind of fill in the gap in those places. Nehemiah delegated the authority to get the work done using the right people in the right places, and lastly, we see in this text, just by the fact that Nehemiah wrote down these names in his journal for eternity in the scriptures, that Nehemiah was a leader who gave credit to others for their good work. He recognized good work. He had the right people in the right places, giving them authority to do the work. And then he gives credit to those who have done good work. And further, he double-mentioned these to Koites, right? As we just saw, he double-mentioned these to Koites because he wanted to recognize that these to Koites had put in hard-fought effort to get the job done. So all of that this morning is to ask a few questions of you. Is all work good? What kind of work is good work? Who is called to work? Is my occupation as a postal worker, a truck driver, uh, a school worker, a home builder, a software engineer, code enforcement officer, uh, is all of that, is that godly work? Does my nine to five job contribute to the kingdom of God? Does retirement mean that I'm free to not work again? What is the purpose of work? Does God work? And what does the Bible say concerning work. Well, I would start out with this. If we're all to live our lives for the glory of God, then we need a God-centered view of work. It's not enough that we try to honor God in how we do our work, or that we're to be Christ-like people at work, or that we support the kingdom of God with the money that we make from our work. And it's more than that. The glory of God must inform and transform our view of work itself. God may be honored with the results of work, but in America and in our lives, God is not supreme in our view of work itself. So, I want to give us a broad look at a biblical theology of work. And this is by no means going to be exhausted, uh, exhaustive in the time that we have, but... Um, I want us to, to get some background and understanding of what God's Word teaches about work. Does the Bible only concern work that is done on a staff in a church? Does God 
work in other ways with other people? Is God concerned about the work of every born again believer in Christ? What has God said about work? Well, God works. God is at work. God is at work in creation. God is at work in sustaining all things that we are here on this planet. This planet is sustained by the work of God. God is doing all of the work in our redemption. God is an eternal, everlasting, tireless, inexhaustible worker. And he's an inexhaustible worker in his Trinitarian fullness, which means that God, the Father, is a worker. Jesus Christ, the Son, is a worker. And the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, is a worker. They are at work tirelessly. So God is a worker. Jesus is a worker. See, Jesus is clearly involved in sustaining the universe. He is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. He is clearly involved in providence. He is clearly involved in judgment. He is he who judge, and he has the work of judgment. All judgment, the word says, has been committed to me. This is Jesus saying this. All judgment has been committed to me, uh, and he is himself the one whom God has given the work of redemption. So Jesus is a worker. God is a worker. Jesus said in John 9, I must work the works of my Father, he says. The one who sent me, I must do his work. In John 4, 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Whatever it is that God does, Jesus does. He says, in fact, in, in John 5, 17, My father is working still, and I am working. And you know what happened there when he said that? The Jews, they went ballistic. Because he was making himself equal to God. And because he said he does the same work that God does. Jesus was claiming that he works and he does the work that God does. See, the Father's a worker, the Son is a worker, and the Holy Spirit is a worker. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that works in providence and sustaining the universe and all that is in it. It is the Spirit that is even engaged in the work of judgment. And of course, in the work of redemption. It is, it is the Holy Spirit that is at work in regeneration. It is the Holy Spirit that is at work in us being born again by the Spirit. God is a worker. So now, to get a theology of work for ourselves, as an image bearer of the Father, work then is a moral virtue. Work is a moral virtue. It's a moral issue. Our great-grandparents... And grandparents, some of you, depends on how old you are before this all sort of changed. But our great-grandparents and grandparents understood work to be intrinsically valuable. They understood that work was a value in and of itself. That it was a morally responsible thing to do. That work was morally responsible. That it was an ethic that was given to them by God. They worked hard because even if, if some of our grandparents and, and great-grandparents were not believers, society was once influenced by the Scriptures. And because the Scripture reveals that it is the will of God to work, work was then 
morally important, and it was part of the moral fiber of our, of our country. And I would say this, that the American worth ethic right now is almost all but lost. It's almost all gone. Hard work does not matter anymore. And why doesn't it matter anymore? It is because this, I believe. Because societally, God doesn't matter anymore. Hard work doesn't matter when God doesn't matter. If God doesn't matter, then there's no universal standard for moral, ethical behavior. Once you remove God from every human institution, then all sorts of, of, of moral, unethical behavior becomes okay. And we lose it. We lose our standard for morally ethical behavior. And one of the most basic, this is one of the most basic moral behaviors that a Christian, that a human being has as an image bearer of God is work. And once you remove God from those institutions, then it is one of the first moral characteristics that the culture gets rid of. Christians are called to work. And almost all, and I mean almost all because it's almost all. There are some occupations, and I want to get into those exactly. But almost all work that a Christian does is kingdom of God work. And when we think, because it's a moral, ethical responsibility to do so. So all work is good. All work is for the kingdom of God. It's how God's sustaining the universe through you. It is your work and your labor. This is how God works. God works, but he uses you as agents for his kingdom. Right? So this is how work works. And so we should ask ourselves this question. What is my life's pur purpose? Like, what is my vocation? Well, John Calvin writes this. It is our sacred duty to accept and even embrace what God has called us to. The sacred is not distinct from the secular. Rather, he says, the sacred is what sanctifies the secular. In following your proper calling, no work will be so sordid as to not have splendor and value in the eye of God. God calls and enables all that belong to him to be agents of kingdom work in every sphere of life and in every part of society. Could you imagine if there were no Christians on our public school campuses? None. What if we had no Christians in public school unwilling to do the work? What, what, it, what would it look like if there were no... Uh, what would our trans transportation system be like, maybe? If you think about, what if there were no uh, born-again believers driving trucks on the road, hauling our stuff to and fro? What if, what if there were no Christians on the road? What if there were no born-again believers in city government? What if there were no born-again believers uh, doing law enforcement? What would that look like? See, every calling, if you're following your proper calling, no work does not have splendor and value in the eye of God. So if we are to live our lives for the glory of God and we are commanded each one to do our part in the body of Christ and we are to work properly to the building up of our brothers and sisters, I ask us this, why is the church in America and our, and our own bodies sometimes filled with Tekoite nobles unwilling to stoop to serve their Lord? It is said that 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. I think it's more like 10 to 90. I think 10% of the people in the church do the work and 
let it happen. Right? Where we are to be doing the work. But it's it's to embrace all of our work. And I don't mean just, you know, the nuts and bolts of picking things up and participating in church. I mean, your job, your, your actual job, it is sanctified by God, right? So that work is, is part of what it is that the church body's work is. We have to think of work in that way, that it encompasses our, it encompasses our work outside of the home. It encompasses our work at the home. It encompasses what we do as parents. That's work. It's our job. We need to do our job. We need to work. We need to work at being good employees. That's work. We need to work at being good brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. We need to work at being a good dad or mom in the home. We need to work at being a good son or daughter in the home. Work is constant. It is sanctified. It is good. Well, I ask us that question. I want us to say this, too. I want us to think that I'm a guy who's like all work and no rest and all of that. Our rest is God honoring. Only if we've been diligent the rest of the week to do the work. God honoring rest. We need to rest. We're commanded to rest. We are commanded to rest. But we're commanded to work. And our rest is God honoring when we have been faithful to work. When we've been diligent the rest of the week. So what I'd like to do now is to turn, have you turn with me to Second uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. And I want to uh, begin in verse 6 because I want to look at what Paul does and he warns the church against idleness. He warns the church against idleness. Beginning in verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he might be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So, here we are. Paul says, we're not to associate with a person called a brother or a sister that walks in idleness. That is, someone who is unwilling to work. This is different than unable. I'm not talking about people who are unable. I may get there in a minute. But unwilling to work. Paul here says that we are to imitate those who work hard and that we are not to burden others by our idleness. He even goes as far as to say, if anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. 
Imagine that, let him not eat. We uh, did this when Dylan was about four years old. He was five years old. He was in the house and he was making messes and Heather was having to clean up after him and Leela over and over again and she just kept doing it and she would tell him, I need you to pick up this stuff and you need to do this. And so I get home and she's a little frustrated. She says, you know, he just won't, he just won't pick up his stuff and he just won't follow up with, I tell him to do it, I tell him to do it and he just won't do it. He just won't, he's not willing to, to work. So I get home and I look at Dylan and I said, Bible says, if you're not willing to work, you can't eat. And he looks at me and I said, can't eat. So either you do what your mom says or you're not getting dinner. The Bible says, if you're unwilling to work, you can't eat. Of course, we didn't do that to him. But, but the idea here too is, is that what he's talking about is not being a burden to other people if you are willing to be just idle. If anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. But see, we live right now in a society that encourages idleness, doesn't it? Gives you, give them some free food, give them a free house, give them a free cell phone. And then they become a burden on the rest of you who are willing to work, who are out there working hard. They become a burden to you to pay for it. Somebody's got to pay for it. Now Paul says in the church, we're to take note of those who are unwilling to work and have nothing to do with them, that they might be ashamed. We're not to treat them like they are an enemy at all. They are a brother or a sister, but we need to warn them against idleness like we would a brother and a sister. You see, I want us to get this. If we get anything this morning, that work is a spiritual good. Work is a spiritual good. I thank God for work. Because see, God worked in creation. God worked making men and women in his own image. And at the end of his work, he said it was good. It was very good. But we sinned against God and fell short of his perfect standard. And so what, did, what happened as, as sin tainted our work? It made it toil and a struggle and not a joy. And then think about this, that if, as we are fallen because God is perfect and we failed to 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 faithfully love him and he made this work hard for us and then we tried to please God with our own righteousness and that so we tried to do this work that was now tainted by sin this righteous work that we tried to do to please God was all tainted by sin and what does God say about our self-righteous work works that are done in ourselves he says they are filthy rags that work has absolutely no value so there we are we're stuck we're supposed to work. We know the moral ethic of work. We've sinned against God, and here we are in this position. And any work we try to do to please God is going to fall short because God says that our work of righteousness is filthy rags to Him. So here, there we are. We're in this dilemma as, as a human race. And God sent His Son, who worked God's perfect righteousness and perfect obedience to the will of God. Jesus obediently did all of the work of God on your behalf, even unto death. You see, and if you today will repent and turn from your own work and you believe in Jesus Christ, here's what's happening. If this is happening to you right now, God is at work on you. If you are convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment as you are sitting right here, God is working on you right now. God is working on you. And if 
You have been regenerated in this moment and are born again and turn in faith and repentance and you turn away from your own work and you believe in Jesus Christ. See, God has worked on you and he will begin to work in you and then he will begin to work through you. And as we said in the assurance of pardon in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then get verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you want to understand the, 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 uh, a nutshell understanding of work, look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. That's a pretty nutshell version of what the Bible teaches about work. Is that our salvation is a work of God. God at work. That we then become and are His workmanship. We are what He has created. What He has worked out is us. But He's created us in Christ Jesus for works that He prepared beforehand. And that our work then is to do what? It says at the end of that, walk in them. We walk in works that God has created beforehand for us. So if God has created you to be a postal worker and a truck driver, guess what? That is a work that God prepared beforehand for you to do. And you, being his workmanship, are to walk in that. And to walk in that in faith. You and I have been created for work that God has prepared beforehand. And your work and my work is to walk in Jesus Christ's righteousness. The work that... that, that you do, and that I do, has been redeemed in Christ. And guess what? That which is redeemed in Christ, it is the work that we do. It's not a if you want to kind of thing. It's just a reasonable duty. Work is just a reasonable duty of a born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. Some of you might be thinking, well, isn't work a product of the fall? No, the toil of work is a product of the fall, but Adam and Eve were at work before the fall. God saw that it was good. Work is good. Now, after the fall, our work has been redeemed in Jesus. It has been given more value than it ever had in Jesus. And guess what? If your work is done in Jesus Christ, it is pleasing to him. So I ask this, and I close with this, are you willing to work? Are you willing? Let us take a moment of silence and just take in God's word, and then we'll pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the work that you have done in creation, the work that you are doing in sustaining the universe. The work that you have done in Christ Jesus to punish sin and bring justice and mercy and grace to us. We are thankful for the work that the Holy Spirit has done in us in regenerating us and in making us new. We are thankful for the work of faith that you have done in us. Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy and your help to be those who are about your business that we are about the Father's business. In whatever area you have us, help us to embrace 
the work that you have given us to do. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.